Welcome to the Sad Songs and Skillets podcast, where we share stories with y'all from our friends, family, and some of your favorite musicians of our time spent in the field, on the water, in the kitchen, and on the stage. My name is Josh Wrinkle, along with my buddy Jasper Lorenzen. We hope y'all enjoy it. Sad songs and skillets ain't selling. All right. Welcome back. Sad songs and skillets <laughs> brought to you by Sound Biscuit Productions out of Sevierville, Tennessee. That's Go right. ahead. Look them up online. Give Dave Mager a call. Dave Mager's the guy that runs that. He's a good fellow. He'd love to hear from you. Yeah, he'd love to hear from you. We're also brought to you by Frisbee Cast Iron Seasoning out of Florida. It's a great company, great people to work with, great product. I use it for all my cast iron. I know that Jug does. How many, we were talking about, you know, in the first podcast, we talked about how much cast iron paraphernalia Jug owns. We were trying to come up in pounds how much it is. What did we figure on? I'm going to say, I'm going to say 470 pounds. What? Yeah, I was thinking in the thousands. In the thousands, I, was I just wanted like to say I just wanted to say four hundred and seventy because it's forty seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was thinking of Billy Hurt. Yeah, but uh, I'd say probably a thousand pounds. Yeah, let's, let's go with uh, twelve hundred and forty seven. When are we gonna weigh it all? We need to get together. Maybe the next podcast will be us weighing it. I don't know how we're gonna weigh it though. Well, just one piece at a time, it's like uh, a Johnny Cash song. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you want to introduce about, our guest? <laughs> Yeah, I'll introduce our guest. Our guest uh, on this episode is our good friend, Dennis Johnson. He doesn't like when I call him Dennis. He says it feels like he's in trouble or something. Denny Johnson, better known as Uncle Denny. Y'all may have seen him on the road a few times with us. He he travels with us every once in a while when we're uh, going to shows and such. And he's a big part of the Tunes and Tales program. Down in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, y'all may have seen him on the streets of Gatlinburg playing his guitar. Denny, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Love it. I, I did want to bring up right away, because prior to Tunes and Tales, did you go by Denny, or was that name adopted in the Tunes and Tales program? Actually, I had a few family members that called me Denny, and then I was, uh, I'd fill in for or help out a family old-time string music group whenever i joined that group they just call me uncle denny okay even though i wasn't their uncle so that's where the uncle part come in was yeah. uncle denny and it just kind of stuck because they'd introduced me as that but uh yeah i've had a few friends okay. and family call me denny. i didn't know well, how your long name's the... really denny right no. dennis. dennis dennis okay but see i've heard him also called dj as a nickname Huh. Yeah, I worked at a electrical generating station for 34 years, playing my music around working that job. And uh, that they they told me first day, "What's your nickname?" And I didn't have a nickname. Said, you <laughs> you, get, you give us a nickname here in about 10 seconds, or we're giving you one. <laughs> and I said DJ. I only had one guy ever call me that ever, and I said yeah. DJ, and it stuck. So I, most of the people. Where'd you hear that nickname? Uh, his friend uh, is it the guy that comes to Vine Grove? Yeah, right. yeah. okay. He, yeah, he calls you like exclusively. That's the only thing he calls you is DJ. Yeah, which is way too confusing for us, of course, because <laughs> we have a CJ in yeah. the band. So we, you know, yeah. But yeah, so Danny, Dennis, DJ Johnson, Denny the Rock Johnson. 
Right here, we're coming to you. <laughs> coming to you right here from the headquarters of Sa- uh, the world Sad headquarters. Songs. Yeah, the world headquarters of Sad Songs and Skillets. Where Where is it this time? In Gordonsville, Tennessee. That's right. It's been somewhere different every time. Yes, we've uh, so far we've exclusively recorded at a different spot every every podcast. Yes. So right now we're coming from my home base, and yeah, I think we're uh, all glad to be together, aren't we? Always, man. It's been a while since we've seen you, Danny. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. I've seen CJ, but I haven't seen you two for a yeah, while. Well, that don't count. <laughs> uh, we met, Denny, uh, when me and CJ was doing Tunes and Tales, right? Right. And we bonded over a guitar, a guitar that you now own. Right. The Keep It Lonesome guitar that you've been accused of stealing. <laughs> it was uh, it was actually my first Martin guitar and. uh then he took a liking to it, and we become friends just solely by talking about the guitar. And then uh, years later, I needed some money to buy a different guitar and knew exactly who to call to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. you knew it'd be safe. Huh? Yeah, you got roped into that one. Yeah, No, it, I, I love that guitar, and I'm glad that you have it, of all people. You know? It's better than it going to someone who – I know you I know you love that guitar. So I thought the D18 was your first Martin. I don't talk about that. <laughs> I didn't have that long enough for it to be my first Martin. Uh, it was your best Martin. I, I know. I kind of wish I still had that one. It was a good one. But I call that one my first Martin. But if no one's seen this so. guitar, it's a Sunburst D28. Ambertone. Oh, sorry. Yes, you're right. Ambertone. And yeah. it has some uh, painted scripting on the front of it. Yeah. It's custom done. It was. So it's very recognizable. And Denny happened to be somewhere one time. Or someone recognized it, and they thought that he'd stolen it. From, yeah, from Jug. Like oh, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't understand that there was a legal, legit transaction that had occurred. So, <laughs> yeah, well, Danny was, was about to get. You know, I don't know what was going to happen. You're I don't about know to get people, kicked out of Kentucky, weren't you? Yeah. Well, that was the deal. You know, I live in Southern Illinois, and I carried it over into Owensboro, Kentucky, for a uh, indoor winter jam going on there in that town, and. And people kept walking by, and they'd, they'd look at it. I knew what they were thinking because <laughs> it was home. You know, it was home in Kentucky. And then finally someone said something about it, and they, they were kind of looking out of the corner of their eyes as they saw contentment. And it was actually talking to uh, their granddaughter. I said, isn't that Jug's guitar over there? Haven't you played that guitar? Yeah. And uh, – I I thought yeah I need to need to cut this off so I said yeah I I bought I bought this from Jug then a little bit later guy caught right up in my face well yeah he uh taking pictures and videos of me and said what are you doing with Jug's guitar yeah <laughs> and I had been going through this I wasn't having any fun at this jam at all this had happened I don't know how many times <laughs> being, being in like harassed. an hour and finally I thought I. I'm just, I'm leaving. and uh, But I told that boy, I said, well, I stole it. So that that's, I didn't know you were there, and I didn't know all this was going on. Well, that same night, that boy that you you referred to him as a little banny rooster. Were you I wasn't ex- going to say that part. <laughs> that was your exact words. <laughs> I hope you're listening, Jake Fatty. But uh, he called me, and he was like, did somebody steal your guitar? I didn't know you were down there, but I am a little quick to go along with something. So I was like, yeah, man, somebody did steal my guitar. Why? Have you seen it? And he was like, yes, the guy, it's, it's, 
the guy's here at the jam in Owensboro. And I was like, well, don't let him leave. I'm on my way. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I appreciate all the help. That's, that's, bad. that's <laughs> bad. You shouldn't do that kind of stuff. I mean, in Kentucky, it could have ended pretty poorly. Oh, it was great. Poor, poor Dennis Johnson laying out in the parking lot. Oh, oh, man. With his guitar stolen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. About the only place I carry it anymore in Kentucky is Vine Grove because they've, I've been there enough now that they, <laughs> they most of them know me, and uh, but every once in a while someone will recognize it. Yeah. That's a recognizable guitar. That's right. But anyways, uh, Denny is a, a big-time friend of the outdoors and you do a lot of hunting? Do a lot of hunting. Do you do a lot of fishing? I don't, I don't feel like we've ever talked about fishing. Not so much anymore, but it's not because I didn't love it. That was actually, I'm going to have to say, my second love. First yeah. love was just being in the outdoors. Yeah. Fishing come next, then the small game hunting, and then much later the larger game. Whether I, guess, I, guess, turkey. I guess the only fishing story I've ever heard you tell is when you walked into the fly shop and asked if they had worms. Live, didn't you tell me that story? Yeah. You yeah. asked if they sold live bait? Yes. They tried to run you out? Yeah, they all but slit my throat. <laughs> yeah. You were just kidding, right? You were being sarcastic? No. Me, me and my dad, we were, for a short period of time, I lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I'd been wanting to go down to the Everglades just to make contact with possibly one of them 12-pound largemouth bass. Yeah. And uh, so I was looking for shiners. Well, we went into this bait store that was, well, it was a tackle store. I didn't really pay attention to what it was, and I walked in, and I seen they had a lot of fly fishing stuff, and I was looking at these VHS tapes, the old VHS deals, and and there was this this man that was just all over all these tapes with these huge saltwater fish, and, and uh, finally I thought, well... We need to be on the road. And uh, seen this guy up on a little stage area in the back of this tackle store. And I said, excuse me. And he was up there. He's tying flies. And I said, excuse me. I said, uh, do you sell shiners here? He didn't even look up. <laughs> He's, I was looking right at him. His face looked like an old catcher's mitt. I mean, it was just, I mean, rolled and leathered and tanned. Yeah. And uh, he said, look around, you boy. <laughs> I, was, I was looking around. I thought, well, Shiners must be right behind me. <laughs> <You know. laughs> look around you. So I looked around, and he said, this is a fly fishing store. He said, we don't sell live bait here. And I said, oh, okay. Then I noticed that old man that was talking to me was this man that was on all these tapes that set these – state records and world records and all kinds of stuff. You know, and this was back in the late 70s, so I'm sure he's gone now, bless his heart. But he he kind of gave me an introduction to the fly fishing world. And I ended up buying my first little setup there. Yeah. And uh, because I had never done it before. Mm -hmm. And the, the boy that was there working the floor was real helpful. And I said, hey, I'm I'm a beginner. And then, uh, so I got all my set up, and then we went and found another bait store and got some shiners. There you go. <laughs> we seen was alligators, and we got the Everglades. So you didn't end up catching a no, twelve pound largemouth. I, I got you. Man, that would have made some good eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
<laughs> We've talked about uh, that. Yeah, that was How do you feel about eating largemouth bass? Well, I went through a time where it didn't care. You know, it didn't matter. I was fishing to eat. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I just loved fishing. Then I got to a point to where, but it was basically because it was a lake that I lived on. I lived on a 111-acre private-owned lake. And uh, so I would go out and get my crappie when the crappie would run, which was my favorite eating fish. I would hit the bluegill and red ear when they were on the beds, and that's where I just had a ball with the fly fishing mm-hmm. outfit that I'd bought, you know, some oh, years man. before. Red ear on the fly rod are the best. Yeah, and then I ended up getting in the sports fishing world pretty good. I would keep the smaller bass, largemouth bass. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, but I had my, I had my, since I lived out there, I I was able to find all the hot spots. Knew where the little tree stumps were, yeah, and where the channels cut in. So it was, you know, it wasn't really fair. It wasn't like I was this great fisherman, but I could go out and I could, I could catch a five to six pounder pretty readily, unless the, unless the weather was just totally not cooperating at all. Mm-hmm. But I'd always put them back, yeah. And even if they were in that, really, even if they if they were in that three pound range. I wouldn't keep them. There was plenty of smaller ones that I, but I, you know, that I could keep and, and eat. But uh, yeah. I preferred bluegill and crappie anyway. To the oh yeah, the, for uh, sure. I like we, any. Uh, sorry, I was just gonna say I feel like we we kind of jumped straight into it talking about the fishing, but we should take one step back and just talk kind of about your origin story to the whole whatever came first. Like you said, you kind of you love the outdoors. You got into fishing. Like, how did it, I don't know. How when, did it evolve? How did it evolve? Where did it start from? Like, what what stemmed your it was, love for the for the whole thing? It was the lifestyle of my grandparents and parents that they hadn't totally changed yet. Whenever I was a small kid, even back then, if you was in a small town, there was a little mom-and-pop grocery store on you know, every little neighborhood, plus your bigger grocery stores, which that changed everything. For you know our grandparents or my my parents as youngsters and my grandparents, for sure, but there was still things that either they didn't have in the grocery stores, or things that they liked better that they could gather. So, when the hickory nuts was falling, or when the pecans was falling, we were out with my parents and grandparents gathering, and. Um, that was more on my mother's side than my on my father's side. Even more into the berry deal, you know. My grandpa, well, I think it's because my grandpa liked to make the wine on the sly. So we would go out, we'd pick, <laughs> we'd pick elderberries, wild elderberries, or we'd pick wild grapes, or uh, pawpaws. Of course, that's a real short season on them. They when they drop, they're dropping. We'd gather that kind of stuff, supposedly for jellies and jams and syrups. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure that them elderberries, they, most of them probably made it back here to Grandpa's barn where he would <laughs> whip him up some wine. Yeah. So we, I was just out in the woods a lot. Come springtime, yeah. um, my dad had been introduced to the morel mushroom hunting right. uh, back shortly before I was born through one of his brother-in-laws. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so by the time I come around, got old enough, you know, hunting the morel mushrooms, uh, that was what you did in the spring. So I was out in the woods a lot, either with my dad or my, either one of the sides of my grandparents. Yeah. And, uh, or, or uncles, you know, so, and I just loved it. So it was just natural to be out there. I just loved being out there. Of course, fishing in farm ponds and, and uh, we were close to, uh, Little Elm River and Little Wabash River in this part of southern Illinois that I was in. So dad loved to fish, so I was, I mean, I'd go out fishing with my dad even before I have a memory of it. I've just seen pictures of it, you know. So that was really my my introduction was mainly just being in the outdoors. It felt natural, whether it was in the woods or, you know, it, it felt as natural as being in our living room. right cool yeah so kind of the the gathering thing was what what got you started so did were they into hunting as well or pretty much just the yeah it, but foraging it, and gathering but at that time it was it was all small game mainly fishing yeah you know that i was exposed to uh, um, along with the gathering but when i got older yeah they were but it wasn't any big game in that part of of Illinois, I don't know how far north you had to go before you got into a good deer population. You didn't have to go too far south. We we were only maybe ninety miles north of the Shawnee National Forest. Right. If you wanted to deer hunt, that's where you went. Seeing a deer around was a novelty in some of the better stocked or not stocked, but the counties that had deer in the southern part. It was more of a novelty. Um, there was no season. There wasn't a season in Wayne County, Illinois, which I think is the largest county in the state of Illinois until the early 70s. Really? But the late 60s and, and early 70s, that's when things started turning around. The deer population, of course, like say that there was people taking them. There were a lot of poor people out through the countryside. Yeah. But as far as having a season in the population, it was a lot later. So I never was exposed to that. Right. And the turkeys and the pheasants and the uh, prairie chickens were long gone from that area by the time I was born. My dad experienced the prairie chickens, but the pheasants and the, and the turkeys were long gone. And then the pheasants and prairie chickens are still gone, you know, yeah. in that area. But uh, in the 80s, when the National Wild Turkey Federation joined up with these different counties throughout the United States, that stocking program that that changed everything you yeah know, in the beginning they wanted to make sure there was enough people interested in hunting them before they stocked them in that specific county and i think that changed over time but national wild turkey federation is really responsible with the efforts of local counties getting these turkeys going strong again yeah well we I mean, at the time of this recording we're inching up on turkey season here in Tennessee pretty quick. So we oh, could, if you want to talk a little bit about like your first time, I don't know, your experiences with turkeys and stuff, because that's a pretty neat perspective that coming from you, I mean, growing up, you didn't ever see a turkey probably. I mean, no, because like you said, they weren't there. No, never did. So when was the first time you laid eyes on one and when's the first time you hunted one? First time I laid eyes on one, it was the same guy that I very first started deer hunting with. I was I was an adult before I, I mean I was in my 
mid-20s before I ever first started deer hunting. And I'd been deer hunting for four or five years. And uh, that's when everyone was stalking the the wild turkeys and stuff. And this same friend of mine, he, uh, he was telling me about it. He had turkey hunted twice down in Shawnee National Forest. And uh, we were in the process of trying to get him stocked, or he was, so he on, was the, on the list with. to get him stocked in our little county that I was living at the time, which was Wabash County. And um, so he, he said, it's just, he just talked it up. He said, it's the most exhilarating thing. He, he said, you just got to experience it. And he talked it up so much. I, I said, well, I don't know. I'm really loving this deer hunting. But, uh, but, yeah, so he invited me to go down on a uh, – he was actually going on a scouting trip for the upcoming season. So this was in – I believe it was in early March. And uh, so we took off, went down to Shawnee National Forest in, a, in an area that he had was familiar with. He'd been going down there since he was a kid mm-hmm. with, his, with his father. And uh, so he knew the area really well. So it being March, they were starting to do their thing. And he got out there and he started hooting like an owl. I thought, I've never heard a turkey sound like <laughs> I mean, I was green. I didn't yeah. know what in the <clears throat> world. And he started doing this owl hoot. I mean, we got down there. It was like five in the morning. And we drove an hour and a half to get down there. Shoot. It was dark and he knew this little area to go where he could get there and call. And it went off off the road on two different directions. He did that owl hoot, and all of a sudden I hear this gobble just come busting through that, through the air, and then it was at night. I mean, not night, but early in the morning it was dark. And I thought, well, I've heard gobbles before, like my grandpa had turkeys and stuff, but that was different. I thought, oh, my goodness. Mighty. And right. So... I was interested then. That got your attention. That got my attention. And uh, so I ended up just basically going with him that year, kind of watching. Mm-hmm. But what really got me, I was I was lucky. I know people that have turkey hunted that haven't had but a cup, one or two, or maybe not any of the experiences that you have on a good hunt. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be with him when everything happened. He got on a roosted bird. It was gobbling from the roost. Heard it fly down. Mm. Let go of another gobble. It was closer. Started walking in. We couldn't see it. Getting louder and louder. And then I started hearing something that I wasn't familiar with at all. I thought, what is that? I thought it was another creature of some sort. But it was spitting and drumming. Oh, yeah. And it was almost like an electric motor. And a hum. Yeah. And then whenever it come up over that ridge where I could see it, I seen, well, no, that's that turkey doing that. Of course, it was in the full strut, and then it'd break out, and then it'd gobble and go in the strut again. So I was lucky enough early on to get convinced because I got to see it all in one show. Yeah. Along yeah, with, with him experience. taking, you know, harvesting that bird. So yeah. I was hooked. Been hooked ever since. So here's something I've always wondered. Like that guy, what was, what was his name? Gary Worth. Gary. 
how did Gary know to do all this stuff? Because obviously there's an industry for turkey hunting now. Like uh, Jasper is a new turkey hunter. I've been turkey hunting since I was a kid, unsuccessfully until last year. That's how long it took to make it happen. But when I was growing up and when as Jasper's learning, there's DVDs. There's calls YouTube. you can buy at the store that have instructions. There's YouTube. There's hunting shows. We have mentors that help us learn. Like, I didn't know you could walk into the woods and make an owl hoot and get a, a turkey to gobble at you. How did that guy know? Was he just that good of a woodsman that he knows? I mean, because he obviously wasn't hunting them. No. Before well, then. there wasn't a lot of people in the U.S. hunting them either. Because I mean, yeah. How, so how did he get? There, there was a large, a large family of turkey hunters in Missouri. There was a large gathering. They had been having, they had actually had been having um, conventions even at this time already in other parts of the country where they were okay. thick, and you had celebrities like Ray I is the one that comes to my mind mm. first and foremost. But Gary already was an extremely good outdoorsman and deer hunter. Yeah. Uh, Gary was my, was to me like Bo was probably to you. Yeah. Phenomenal hunter. Uh-huh. You know, lives it, loves it. Well, Gary had already been in the mix with people that had traveled to other states to turkey hunt. Okay. And... And a couple of them were co-workers. And um, there, he found a network of people, a small group between our county and, and the neighboring county, which was Wabash and Edwards County. Uh, two of them together make up just one small county. You know, they're really the two smallest counties in the yeah. state. And um, they had already been talking about trying to form a club. Because at that time, you had to have a club before you could get turkeys stocked in your county. All right. Because they didn't want, you know, an overrun of turkeys and the problems that it may cause. So he had met some people. So he was kind of, but they were pretty green too. Yeah. That whole group were, back in that time was just kind of learning and, and sharing. But as soon as we got that club started, which I become a, a committeeman for that because I got hook, lining sinker. It's easy to do. We was able to, we had a lot of help because National Wild Turkey Federation, they wanted more members and they wanted more turkeys. They wanted their work to, right. to go forward. Yeah, and they weren't so, going to invest into an area unless there was. Right. They weren't just driving all across the country throwing turkeys out the back of trucks. Right. <laughs> they were They were going to areas that wanted them and there was going to be a community that was yes. supporting the whole effort. So right. one of our first... We had a few meetings, you know, gathering people and talking about how we're going to spread the word and and uh, just barely got it going whenever we had the, uh, I think he was like the vice president or something of the National Wild Turkey Federation, came, held meetings with us and helped us organize a, an event for the public, which included Ray I coming and speaking. And I don't know if you've ever... You ever watched any Ray I videos or listened to him? But I highly recommend it. He is a phenomenal, phenomenal turkey hunter. But he grew up with it. You know, he's probably. I mean, his it was a way of life. Parents, grandparents. I mean, 
And Ray is probably, he's older than me, he's probably in his 70s now. But uh, he's he's a natural mouth caller. Uh, yeah. And they took the lights off out of the, the meeting room. And all of a sudden, he just starts doing a thing with the microphone. And you're hearing birds. And you, you hear little tree calls. And you, you know, eventually you hear a gobbler. And, and he takes you all the way through a hunt. The whole experience. With the, with the strutting, the drumming and the strutting. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And he's doing everything with his natural mouth. And then once every, you know, at the end, it's like, bang. <laughs> so that's awesome. you know that's that's kind of how i got introduced to it was going with my good friend gary worth yeah. that and and then uh, uh experiencing that whole experience and then just following that almost immediately was getting that club started and uh, and working with them and then it was like can't wait to get my first one yeah, <laughs> Ray Eye Guy must be good. I see here he's got a Ray Eye's Turkey Hunter's Bible. If he put the put the name uh, Turkey Hunter's Bible on a on must a book cover, yeah, it must be a good. It must book. be good. Yeah. yeah, but uh, man, I got to thinking this morning. I was laying in bed, and I know it sounds crazy, but I cannot wait to be mosquito bitten, pulling ticks off of me, and ate up with. With poison ivy, <laughs> because it means you've been chasing. It means turkeys. we've been chasing turkeys. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to it. It's gonna oh, be. Yeah. It, I'm, oh, it's coming I'm up pumped. quick. You know, this and, and it means I've been chasing white bass because I get into yeah. all the same stuff chasing white bass, but mostly turkey. By the time this podcast is released, turkey season might be over. So hopefully, we yeah. have some turkeys in the bag by then. Oh my gosh! <laughs> hey, here in the state of Tennessee, they give you three. I'm happy with one. Yeah, if I can get one turkey, that's I don't I don't want to tag out. I'm gonna I just want a turkey. I'm gonna make the commitment this year to only kill one in Kentucky, and then I'm I'm buying tags in Tennessee too. I'm only gonna kill one in Tennessee, and the only reason I'm doing that is I've I've been hearing from everybody that Kentucky's turkey population is in a serious decline, so I'm only going after one this year. Yeah, and here here in Tennessee, last year. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before was the first year they brought it. Or, well, I don't know. It had been four for a long time, a limit of four bearded turkeys. They brought it down to three, but a lot of the people that are, you know, more into it and longtime turkey hunters were trying to push the TWRA to lower it even more. Like, they, mm. they're they kind of worried about the population. So, same thing. It's kind of like, well, I might as well just take one. I don't need to get greedy about it. How's it know? looking in Illinois? Do y'all, is your turkey population going strong? Or do you feel like it's on the a downward trend? I feel like it's on a, a downward trend, but I'm not a good one to ask on that because we they do migrate around and kind of goes in waves, and we kind of hunt the same area all the time. Mm-hmm. But I I feel like uh, there's something going on, and I know in Missouri, I, I took a trip this past October uh, down to Mark Twain National Forest, and we barely seen any sign of turkeys mm. we was down there on a camp and a and a primitive type squirrel hunt oh yeah and um with a group of guys and everyone was talking about it there's just hardly any turkeys there anymore 
and one of the guys has lived there his whole life. He lives just outside of this area in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and been there his whole life. And he was talking about it's just it's in, incredible. It's like they just there's not any mm-hmm. in that area, and uh, so I feel like there's something going on. I don't know what. May have been nat- might be nature's way of. Well, there's going to be ups out. and downs yep. with different things. Oh, for sure, so, yeah. Yeah, I just figured, you know what? I mean, I'm new into it. Last year I got my first turkey, super excited. I mean, if this year if I can get one, I don't need to – I'm not so bad off I need to shoot three turkeys for the food every year. I mean, right. it's more of a, you know, privilege to be able to eat turkey meat and one turkey will do fine. I mean, I ate more than some people would anyway. I mean, a lot of people breast them out. Oh, and that's all they do. So yeah, well, it's not know, like we're going after turkeys to fill the freezer. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I mean, it's that's what not, deer are for. Yeah, that's what deer and crappie fishing is for. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're not going to put 20 turkeys in the freezer. <laughs> no, not well going to prison. Well, you're not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> we we know a guy that's done that. We know a guy that done that a few years ago, yeah, and we gave him a, we gave jail. him a stern talking to. Yeah. We told him that his license needs to be taken away for at least ever. Yeah. Forever. But uh, uh, what's your uh, – what did you do in the 2021-22 season, Danny? Did you do much hunting? Well, yeah. I mean, not a ton. I, I haven't bow hunted for a while now. Um, so, used to, I was out bow season, gun season, muzzle loading season for deer. And I'd hit it hard. I went through a wave of, at a German short hair pointer, I went through several years that my main deal was, was bird hunting. You know, I'd, and uh, so I did a lot of hunting with for quail, chucker partridge, uh, pheasant, had to travel for them, and rough grouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the last few years, I, it's basically down to, I might go out, do some squirrel hunting, and uh, and I, I'll do the gun hunting, you know, for the deer, and then the turkey in the spring, and uh, and you know I I don't know. I quit trophy hunting a long time ago, mm-hmm. and um, now if I was out bow hunting, and a buck of a lifetime come by, yeah, um, I don't know what I'd do. I may or may not shoot it with a gun. I wouldn't. I'd never, I just never did have an appeal to me to take a trophy with a gun. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. There's not. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, that just never was my deal. Uh, I'm lucky enough to hunt on some private property now that uh, I, I can take anything that I want. Mm-hmm. But I get to see some magnificent bucks. Yeah. And I always, uh, I always get me a couple does for the meat because I love cooking with iron, and I yes. and I like that venison to well, be on that iron. Well, I've about that too. And uh, yeah, you've so, told me about that property you hunt. I mean, there it sounds well groomed. It is. Like, what's the average size buck you're seeing? Oh, I don't know. On I mean, I see a lot of smaller bucks. Yeah, but um, it's it's pretty common to see a one thirty. Yeah. During your hunting, and there's and I've caught glimpses of, of one a couple times out there that's considerably bigger. And the guy that I hunt with that owns that ground, he's he's past that 
150, 150 something several times. On that piece of property? Yeah, his property. Dang. So, I mean, I, I, uh, like I say, if, if I was there and, and that, that one, there's one out there is probably pushing 170. We see every once in a while, really. Mm-hmm. So if that, I, if that one come by, I would be tempted, but I don't think I would just because it's not my property and it's his and he's, He's one to. If that came by, I'd poop in my pants. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hell, if it, it, I would too. If and it then start flinging arrows, close enough. To <laughs> yeah, but you know, I trying to get the arrow to him before the smell hits him. Yeah, I always, you know, knock on wood. I always get my deer tags filled. I always used to get a couple, and I always fill them. Turkeys, I don't always fill those, so it keeps it not because special. Of, not because of lack of trying, though. Not for the lack of trying, uh, I don't have as much initiative as I used to, and that's part of it. I get out there and try, but, you know, if, if it's raining in the morning and I'm cuddled up in that sleeping bag, <laughs> it's yeah, hard. You ain't going. Yeah. There's there's like an 80% chance that I'm not going to go. But say Unless it's the last day, and then I'm going to go. Yeah, yeah, the last day. But, but uh, 20 years ago? Or how long? Like how oh, long ago it was matter. it? Where it didn't matter if it was raining, snowing, yeah, hailing. Probably twenty. Yeah, yeah, it didn't. You matter were out there no matter doing. what. So you got a highlight from your twenty twenty one season? Well, I do. Um, it, it, mainly because it's something that had never happened before. Um, first off, you know, just like everything else, whether it be my outdoors experiences, my uh, my fishing, my hunting, my music, things have evolved as I've got older. Mm-hmm. And outlooks have changed. And I know it's hard for younger people maybe to understand, but it, my highlight every single year, I can tell you within two days <clears throat> of when it's going to happen. And uh, because in the spring, during our turkey season, there is either a Saturday or a Sunday of that season that we're down in Shawnee National Forest that all of my kids are there and my grandkids. You know, So when they all come to camp and we're cooking over the fire irons, you know, and eating and walking the trails, and then, of course, we're only tur- turkey hunting until 1 o'clock, and most of us are done before then, you know, mm-hmm. 1130. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, and we'll go out and do some real mushroom hunting. That's always the highlight. That no matter what would happen, that is so special. Yeah, you know, and, and the pictures that I have had when they were real little, they've started. You know, like one of my grandsons, uh, his first trip out there. I guess he was like a month, six weeks old. Yeah, and we put him in on the camp chair. He's, uh, I guess, seven now, I think, maybe. Just had a birthday. I'm horrible with ages. <laughs> Me too. But um, he's had his picture taken in that same chair every year. Uh-huh. So my oldest son, Nick, we started doing it with his with his son. taken. So just little things like that and yeah. having those pictures. Traditions. But, but I guess outside of that is this uh, – I mentioned earlier we had a 
squirrel hunt some of my buddies put together. They, they do this every year in Crawford County, Indiana, which is not too far from your county in Kentucky. Yeah, I know. It. I, I, and, I almost came a couple of years ago. I'm going to make it there one day. Well, they, they wanted to do something a little different this year. And the guy that kind of started this whole thing, he took me 30 years ago to this Mark Twain National Forest, and we did a turkey hunt, and I fell in love. He'd been going down there every year since his college years, a friend of his that he had met in college that was from there. And uh, he had not been back since he had taken me 30 years ago. Hmm. Wow. I, I didn't realize that. Some of the other guys had never been there. So he, he got with the group that normally always goes, ask them if they would like to do something different, and they could go down there and hunt turkeys if they wanted. They wanted to get a turkey tag at that time of the year with Bo. Or they could um, squirrel hunt. Well, this group of guys, they're all primitive. They either hunt with longbow, recurves, or flintlocks. Well, it had been quite a while since I had really practiced. I mean, last time I shot longbow recurve was with you boys, but it wasn't a practice session, you know. Yeah. So that was out. The only muzzleloader I have is a fifty-four caliber. I've squirrel hunted with that before, but it's a mess because you're picking up two pieces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. So I thought, I'm not going to be part of the group when it comes to flintlock or recurve or longbow. So I had this old, uh, I'd recently had purchased this 1940s model uh, 22 handgun and a high standard military. And I thought, well, that's evening the, evening up the ground a little bit. Yeah. It's actually maybe putting me behind a little bit. I'll go squirrel hunting with a little 22 military pistol that was made back in like 1948, 1949. So I took that. And I did take 22 rifle also. But I was out. Um, nobody was seeing any squirrels. You know, I mean, it was just dead. Unless we were sitting on our cabin porch. We were covered up in them. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> out and about, nobody was seeing any. And I had heard one barking. And I, I heard another one. I thought, I think there's two barking up there. And I, so I just started easing my way down the end of this little ridge. And I got toward the end of it, and I thought, I better not go any farther. I should be able to see him from here and stand next to this tree. I'll be able to brace off of it. And I was listening and watching and listening. I thought, maybe I took one step too many. It's quiet. And then I heard leaves rustling. Just, just to my left. So I turned real slow. I thought, well, there's one of them's down. And I turned and I looked. And standing maybe 15 yards, maybe, the edge of this ridge is a wild boar in all of his glory with the sh sun shining right on his back, which is just was shiny black as coal mm -hmm. and his eyeballs and tusks was facing me dead on stopped looking at me so that was kind of exhilarating and it yeah. was and it was neat thinking you know i've never seen this before i've never been out where there's wild hogs and stuff. but it quickly turned to 
there is nothing that I can do if it decides to charge me. Yeah. <laughs> because even if this twenty little twenty two would do anything, I'm probably going to miss it every shot. <laughs> and this tree that I'm standing next to is way too big for me to get my arms with my with my belly. My yeah. arms ain't going to reach around it. <laughs> so I thought. So luckily, he just looked at me just a few more seconds after that and cut on down, got out in front of me and stopped and looked again and then went on. So that was pretty. That's pretty neat. But as far as harvesting anything, I was a bust on on turkey last year. Uh, I got my two deer during the gun season, so that's always I'm always grateful for that. And uh, but it was pretty neat seeing the seeing that wild boar out there. Something I've always wanted to do and never have. Yeah, so I would really, really love to hunt them. Sometime yeah, target target them specifically, right? Well, if you go do that, you probably won't see one, but you'll see a lot of squirrels. There you go. Did you uh, think about taking a crack at it though, as it was walking away? No, I was just grateful it was walking away, <laughs> yeah. and I knew that at twenty two, I had a little, sh- uh, not very powerful twenty twos in the thing to begin with. Yeah, I knew it wasn't going to do anything. So. Yep. Yeah, that'd be a little bit of a stretch. Twenty two, maybe a twenty two magnum with a good hollow point. Yeah, right yeah. shot. Right, You'd probably do pretty well, but yeah. So, uh, you're a lover of cast iron skillets, just like myself. And uh, before we get into that, I want to remind everybody: Crispy Cast Iron Seasoning Products. You can get on their website. I think it's crispypuck.org. Is that it, Jasper, or is it just crispy.org? I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. I'm going to have to look it up now. Why don't I know this? I, I think it's crispypuck.org. Speaking of which, I forgot we were going to ask you, what would you estimate his weight of cast iron skillets is? Oh, I don't know. He I mean, got have a you bunch. seen it for a while? I've not seen it for a while, but He's there's a He's got a pretty a good collection. I mean, there's, I mean, it's definitely up, yeah. Crispy.org. Wow. That's a, that's a little, can you spell that out? Yeah, that was embarrassing. <laughs> that was almost embarrassing. We got to tell that story sometime. Crispy, C-R-I-S-B-E-E.org. They make a whole spread of cast iron seasoning products you can get on their website at crispy.org order you some stuff to take care of your skillets when you're in the little checkout section there should be a bar to type in a coupon code you can type in the coupon code prb10 stands for poe rambling boys prb10 that'll get you 10 percent off of your order they've also got a new product out for conditioning your uh cutting boards or just anything wood. It, it works on wood spatulas, uh, wooden spoons, cutting boards, uh, knife handles. It'll make make your knife handles look pretty if they're all dried out like mine are. What else can you use that on? Man, I just don't know. What if you could use it on like a, a gun stock that is old and dried up and bare? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think just about anything. Yeah. It didn't have a... Anything that's wood that needs to be made prettier. Yeah, it doesn't have a... Food safe in case you ever need to cut an onion up on your 30-06 stock. <laughs> you never know. But anyways, with that being said, uh, Denny, tell us some about your uh, cast iron and your cooking. I know you gave me a, uh, a big old Dutch oven one year. You do a lot of Dutch oven stuff, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I used that one you gave me just the other night to fry fish in. 
That's about all I use it for. I love frying fish in that yeah. thing. That's it, kind of a more of a steamer also, so it'd work better probably for frying fish. Yeah, and, well, it just, I found that it, I have an aluminum kettle for frying fish that's actually made for that, mm-hmm. but I found with a cast iron one that it keeps the oil temperature. Because I like, I like to put my fish in the oil when it's 385 degrees. Everyone else says 375 but I like 385, and, you know, the more fish you put in the oil while it's cooking, that temperature is going to drop right. dramatically. Sometimes it'll get down to, you know, the low 300s. But I found that the cast iron kettle that you gave me, the Dutch oven, whatever you want to call it, helps hold that temperature a little better. So that's uh, almost exclusively my fish fryer. Yeah, I still make some stews and stuff in it in the wintertime, but – uh. Yeah, what you got going on for cast iron these days? Well, you know, I've always been, of course, like everybody has, aware of a cast iron skillet. Yeah. You know, most everybody's grew up with having one of them around. But uh, that same friend of mine that organized that Missouri trip, Arnie Howes, many, many, many years ago, he introduced me to what they call, still call living history. Mm -hmm. He started getting involved in that, and then he was – uh, on his way working on collecting clothing to cookware to even whatever you would cook in that cookware that would have been something that was cooked in the 18th century, you know, something by like, you know, pre-Revolutionary War to 1800s, yeah. somewhere in there. And uh, so that's where I really kind of got introduced. He'd bought a Dutch oven. We're just buying random things mm-hmm. in the beginning. We end up having them. Everything. Yeah. And um, so that's where I got introduced to the Dutch oven. And that was that was really, I really enjoyed that. I mean, uh, we always tried to cook things with, Indians would call it uh, food with spirit. We never took meat that one of us didn't harvest. Yeah. And, uh, and then we tried to do the old-time recipes you know, look up different recipes. Well, I just thought it was kind of neat how he could flip that lid over and cook pancakes on that lid. Mm-hmm. The same one that we'd cooked venison stew, you know, yeah. lid on the correct way. Now, is this a smooth lid or like a self-basting lid? No, no, this has been a smooth, more like a concave. It, okay, it I know, yeah. It dips in All the right. center. Okay. So it would double as a, as a like a skillet. A second skillet. Right. Yeah. Or you used it as a lid, and then the, the lid itself, the top of the lid actually went down, had a lip around it. Yeah. Which kind of really makes it officially a true Dutch oven in some people's eyes. Yeah. Because you could put the coals on the top. On the lid, yeah. You know, yeah and that's what I was going to ask bottom. about, it because whenever I'd heard of, or like seen Dutch oven stuff, or ever heard that term, it was always where they were cooking the stuff from the top. Like, I didn't realize that, like, I thought that's what a Dutch oven was. I didn't realize you could just use a Dutch oven as, like, a regular, like, pot. Yeah, yeah. Like a pot or whatever. I thought that that term Dutch oven only meant, like, when you were cooking from the top down, I guess. I don't really know how it works. I've just seen. Yeah. Well, it's usually both because you have a few coals on the bottom, a few on the top, and then it's acting more like an oven. Yeah, because you're getting heat from both. But, you know, it's kind of like a. It's kind of like a resophonic guitar being called a dobro. Right. 
Right. Yeah. That's my feeling. Yeah. You know, everything's a Dobro where Dobro is actually just a brand name of a yeah, Resiponic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I think they call everything Dutch ovens now, but I, I more think of them as the ones that you can put the coals right. on the top and bottom. But uh, started doing a lot of experimenting with that, and then I seen a television show on public broadcasting of uh, Johnny Nix. Yep. And uh, he was a trail ride. Evidently, was a pretty large uh, horse trail ride club, but uh, he'd, he'd made quite a name for himself on being the cook for this trail ride for so many years. A lot of people knew him until he was approached by a woman and her husband that had had been working with public broadcasting and talked him into doing a show. And I, that just fascinated me. I learned so much from that and I got one of his books and, yeah. and, uh, then I just found myself collecting. And so, I mean, I've got, yeah. How many pounds do you have? I, I do not know. <laughs> I mean, I've got skillets that, that are, I've got one skillet that is, two-thirds the size of this tabletop across. Jeez. I, it barely fits in wow. my fire irons. And my that's fun to use on a camp because it's such a large surface that you can cook different things. Yeah, you got different stuff going. Or if you're doing a stir-fry, yeah, you know, for a big group, um, it just it works great. And, I, I mean, I've even got Dutch ovens to where I've got small ones just for – Enough for everybody. If I had eight people at camp, mm-hmm. I could make eight different uh, cobblers, and they'd have their own individual little small Dutch oven. That's serving. cool. You know, just stuff like that. And all the old stuff, I I like that too as far as the waffle maker and the mm-hmm. corn muffin pans that's shaped like corn, you know, the all corn that sticks. stuff. But, yeah, corn sticks. I don't use most of what I've got. I don't use. I I'm the same way, man. I I bet I don't use three quarters of what I have. But I will say, and I'm totally honest on this. Uh, I use the crispy paste on everything. Yeah, that's what I use. Uh, that stuff is amazing. I like the stick too, but uh, I found out that that paste. Yeah, you know I. Especially if I'm doing a like a larger surface, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like it uses a bunch. It's just kind of easier to yeah. kind of dribble out. It's around. easier to just. I think the but cream lasts longer. I, I'd you know? say, yeah, yeah. I, I'd say it does. I feel like it does. And yeah. on the corn stick skillets, it's easier to like because if you've got the crispy puck or the crispy stick, it's a little bit harder to get down into the nooks and crannies. Yeah. So yeah. they all definitely have their application, but I am definitely a. A fan of the cream, yeah, me too. Over the, yeah, have, I'm have using you, the stick. I feel like I use too much. Yeah, I just like want to cover the entire thing with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't need to. You don't need. Yeah, that much. right. Yeah. Sure. Have you tried any of their uh, their scented products? No, I I did there for a while. But let me see here. I've got their website pulled up. Uh, for if a, you go to that website and want to buy something, did you tell them? Yeah, I told them about the discount code. I thought you did. I what think they it? still, it's uh, PRB10. That's right. More time. I'm not seeing the scented stuff on their website right now. Maybe they. I'll tell you what I really like. If you're getting on there to buy something, go ahead and buy one of those uh, wood brushes, wood bristle brushes. Oh, yeah. Because if you cook with that, you know, cook with the, cri- or have the crispy in your pan, you cook, you get done. I just, 
you know, turn the hot water on, put it in there, and just wipe through it one time with that bristle brush, and it knocks everything mm-hmm. off, and then you just done. Yeah. It's a good I'm, way to clean I'm it. not seeing the cinnamon stuff on their website. Maybe they've done away with it. I don't know. They used to have a butterscotch and an apple pie scented seasoning. I never tried them. Oh, man. I just I, use a standard. Yeah, I do too. But it was good stuff. What's uh, what's your favorite thing to cook lately? I know it probably always changes. Well, I know you're a stew guy. but I am, but, but lately I have really been – for the longest time, I did Johnny Nick stuff or, or a Southwestern flair like Bobby Flay, mm-hmm. I'd add. But here lately, I my old uh, my old buddy Justin Wilson, the Cajun cook, he's been passed away for quite a while now. But yeah, um, they've been showing his shows on weekends. I set him up to record again. I watched him many, many, many years ago, and I'm not saying I, I'm not a recipe guy. I, I just I mean, I have followed recipes, but I'm not really a recipe guy. I'm more of an ingredients guy from people that are tried and true. Mm-hmm. And Justin Wilson in this in this Cajun or Creole style cooking does some things that I never would have thought of done. Like he, he'll put that Lynn Perrin's Worcestershire sauce because that's a French deal. Mm-hmm. He'll put that in things that you'd never, that I'd never think of, even my, like a dressing or a you know, yeah. But he'll use that. He will also use a favorite steak sauce in stuff that you just normally wouldn't. Not a lot, just a little. Yeah. He always uses, at a minimum, red pepper. He never cooks with black pepper. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've started doing. I'll yeah. cook with a little bit of red pepper. I'll save my black pepper for the finish when it's not cooking. Okay. Put it over. Okay. Makes all the difference in the world. Now, are you talking like a dried red pepper? Right, right. Okay. Just regular dried breaks. seasonings. So, my favorite things to do is stuff that screams camp. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a certain amount. It might be whatever I've got handy. Taters and onions, bell pepper, whatever me. If i got some uh, uh, deer meat or if i got some salami or even if I've got some turkey um now usually i'll marinate that turkey in like a dales or, or you know worcestershire and soy blend yeah uh, if i'm using it in like a stir fry mm. and uh but i i tend to go more on the ingredients whereas i might use calabrian chilies and honey if i'm doing like a bobby flay type thing i like yeah. that combo but i've about everything i've been doing whether it be a stir fry or a stew, I'm I'm adding these these Justin Wilson influences in there. Yeah, uh, I started trying to do. I mean, I did the best dish I had, best dish ever, was the one you gave me after you braised those um, antelope flanks. Oh yeah, I forgot. That is that. my number one favorite dish in the world. How did I do that? I don't. I've got it wrote down. Yeah. I don't remember exactly that <laughs> process, but that is something that I would always just leave on the forequarter and and bake slow bake whole with the yeah. front you know, front shoulder of yeah. a deer or something. Was that the uh, shoulder roast I done on YouTube? It or? may have been, but I was thinking you just had the bottom It was just the bottom shanks. shanks. Oh yeah. 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 I said flanks, I mean you shanks. Yeah, uh, uh, okay. Is it like a uh, No, I didn't do the Osabuco. I don't remember how I done it. But I've got you'll, it. You'll have to give me the recipe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was 
delicious. So there ain't no telling what I done. I like using. I, I'll come up with my own stuff a lot. Yeah, you know, and that's hit and miss. But usually, if I stay pretty close to tried and true stuff, mm-hmm. or if I stay true to myself, I learned a long time ago: don't put a seasoning in it unless you can taste it. Yeah. If it's a seasoning you like, seasoning you want, then put enough in there that you can just barely taste it. And if it's not a seasoning that's going to overpower something else, add a little bit more. Yeah. And to me, if I stray stay true to myself on what I've learned and do it a little at a time and do it in layers and let it have time to do its thing and cook before I sample and re-season again, mm-hmm. right. and it's fresh ingredients, I, I'm usually hit a, you know... At least a double. Yeah. Every once in a while, a home run. Yeah. But if I start at just blindly experimenting, that that's that's sixty forty and sixty. <laughs> you know, maybe seventy thirty. Yeah. You have Do to get you have to give me that recipe of the shanks because I've got a couple shanks in the freezer right now. I oh man, I got so many up. shanks I need to eat. Yeah. I'm gonna do something with them, man. We're uh we, we're trying to keep these things right around an hour, and we're already over an hour, and we ain't even talked about music yet. So oh, that's uh, okay. We can do part two. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to do part two. But before we get to part two, just give us a real quick rundown of. Uh, I'm gonna ask all the questions at once. How you got into music? Who is a couple of your music influences? Like, what do you like to listen to? What helps shape the music that you play? And some of the stuff you've got coming up with your music because I know you go out and play a lot. So tell us what you got coming up this summer. As far as playing, you're probably doing Tunes and Tales again, right? I am. I'm, I'm going to be doing Tunes and Tales again. I've got a three-day Easter thing that I've never done before that I'll be down there. I think it's 13th, 14th, and 15th maybe of April. And then I'll be down there the month of uh, July for the summer program, from yeah. July 1st to the last day of July. Yeah. But my biggest plan, my goal for music, this year is songwriting. Yeah. This year and next year. I've put off and put off, and I've got a little sanctuary underway here in uh, in Tennessee mm-hmm. that I'm hoping to spend a little bit more time on in. And I really, I really, before I get much older, I, I want to get some songs that's uh, deep in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, songs that have great meaning to me and it's going to take a while for me to to get it worded like i want because the closer a song is to me the harder it is for me to word oh it is so i'm going to be looking for a few people maybe to give me a hand on on that uh just being able to pull out and to help me express what i want to express that i may not be able to it's going to be me yeah but I, i i'm i'm not beyond looking for help someone to help me frame my thoughts where it's where I want it to be. Yeah. So that's that's my big objective this year is is songwriting. And I would love to have a minimum of 14, and I don't want to rush any of them. So I'm probably going to be carrying this on into part of 2023 also. Yeah. Uh, but that, as far as music goes and going on this year, I'll be I'll be doing the tunes and tales. I'll probably be da- back down there doing the winter magic portion in December. Give at least people a, a quick end. rundown of what tunes and tales is. Well, the Smoky Mountain Tunes and Tales is a city sponsored 
program sponsored by the city of Gatlinburg. And what that program is, it's made up of strolling, costumed, performing artists that could be anywhere from a solo act to a four-piece group. And it's a range of music. It used to just be mountain music. And uh, it's spread out from old-time mountain music to bluegrass to contemporary folk to old-time folk. They've even got a rockabilly group, right? They've even got a rockabilly group. Rockabilly comes straight from, you know, folk music and mountain music. It all just, just ties everything right roots into, into the mountains. It yep. sure does. And and I love the program. I've been a part of it for I think this will probably be maybe my seventh year, maybe. And uh, I think it's their seventeenth year for yeah. the program. But it's um not everybody strolls. They have um, they have stage areas that different acts will rotate in and out of. Uh, usually, that's the ground level plaza at Anakista, and then up at the uh, entrance of the aquarium, both there at, at uh, Traffic Light Six, and then the convention center steps, which is going on up the Parkway, and then on down to Elks Plaza, and um, and then sometimes they'll have it at uh, town center plaza also but that's that's actually under major construction right now so i don't know if that'll be ready so there'll be acts and stationary areas that you'll you'll see them you'll know them with their costumes yeah. on yeah. and playing the music and drawing a crowd and there will be some that also stroll mm-hmm. that stroll just strolling up and down the sidewalks just right in there in the mix of everybody and uh up until covid they had stationary artisans like a spinning Quill, uh, a, a woman that showed you how to quilt, uh, man that made dulcimers, uh, lap mountain dulcimers. That they had a lady made. that made little rag dolls, too. Yes, they? they had the, the doll maker that makes the old-time uh, finger church dolls, they would call them. But uh, with COVID, COVID they had, uh, had to not do that because those people didn't have a way to separate from the crowd. Whereas we could play music in a barricaded area, mm-hmm. they have to be their craft has to be watched and seen. Yeah, and they'd be a little closer, close. hands on. So right for the safety deal, uh, the city suspended that. But I, I'm sure that's just temporary until everything yeah. gets lined up. But I'm not for sure when they will return. But that's the program. Um, so basically, what it is is if you come to Gatlinburg on vacation with your family, it's family friendly. Street performers, exactly that are paid by the city to be there. It's not a, it's not a bunch of street bums. Nope, <laughs> if, nope. if you yeah, see, there's no tip it, buckets out. Yeah, there's no tip this buckets. They don't expect anything. It's super family family friendly. They try to get kids involved. So if you're coming to Gatlinburg for vacation, be sure to look them up. Uh, it's it's a great program. We used to be part of it, the Poe Ramblin' Boys. Yeah, that's the whole reason I moved to Gatlinburg in the first place. I started yeah. going down there in 2010, and then yeah, yeah. But uh, and that's how we met and, you, Danny. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, it. So, and it's a, it's a good opportunity for musicians. So, any musicians listening to this, you've probably already missed the auditions for the 2022 season. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, by the time this comes out, anyways, they should be, you know, gearing up to do it. But if you're a musician and you're looking for, you know, steady work throughout the summer, it's definitely something that you can look into. They could go to. Facebook page, Smoky Mountain Tunes and Tales, 
That's Smoky without an E. Yes, yeah. M O K Y, Smoky Mountain Tunes and Tales. And that Facebook page will give updates. It also it will also announce uh, the different times because they have like they have a Celtic three day Celtic that just finished. They got the three day Easter now. They've got the the old standard how it all started summer program, which mm-hmm. is through uh, July this year. And then they also have the Winter Magic tunes and tales that are weekends only um and that's for the starting the first friday after thanksgiving until the last full weekend before christmas eve but it will also announce the um, auditions and those are generally held in the month of january okay yeah yeah right on so what's uh real quick what who's how how'd you get introduced to playing music and who's one of your big influences well, I got introduced by, first, my parents. My dad was hardcore traditional country. His favorite instrument was a steel guitar. He yes. wanted that in every song. <laughs> a pedal steel? A pedal steel. Yeah. And uh, my mom, I've got a picture of her when she was, I think, 15 or 16 years old, standing out the corner of the driveway by the great big giant bottle cap Coca-Cola sign, wearing her poodle skirt, bobby socks, and a ponytail, she was she was old time rock and roll all the way. Yes. So early That's great. Early on, I was a mix, and I had an uncle, one of my my mother's uh, uh, sister's husband that was a radio DJ at WFIW. He was a longtime musician that played in the Wabash Playboys. He was a big influence on me as a younger age. He played a variety of old, old country music, but he had. Funny songs that he'd throw in there because we were kids. Yeah. And uh, along with some serious songs, big influence. Um, another one of my mom's sisters married uh, a guy named Robert Matthews. He was all about Marty Robbins. And he was a uh, redheaded Irishman that every word he said meant something. Mm-hmm. Whenever he sang, he wasn't trying to do anything except be himself and every word meant something. And he would sing them old ballads, and it was like I was watching a movie. Yeah. And every word was was clear. It was precise. It was like, this has a reason. Listen to me. Mm. He had a huge influence on me. And then my mother's brother was all about the Southern gospel. He, he ended up being in a, a family quartet. Uh, for another family that he had joined ended up marrying uh, – one of the daughters there um, started a recording studio uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s in Flora, Illinois. He'd do demos on any kind of music, but he, but he was he was specialized in gospel music. So our family get-togethers, there was always pianos going, guitars going. Yeah. He played the stand-up bass. He, he was the one that has That's that 1957K that... blonde model that I, yeah. it's, I don't own it now, but... Those all of that together was a mix. My early influences really, whenever I started playing music, was always acoustic. Acoustic guitars always jumped out at me. It didn't matter if it was a rock band. If it had an acoustic guitar part in there, that's the part that grabbed my attention. Yeah. So Seals and Crofts, easy listening rock stuff like Seals and Crofts, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan. Neil Young, all of that stuff was like 
whenever I was starting to get older is what grabbed my attention. That's yeah. what I, I really liked. As things evolved on, I really become uh, appreciative of the of the traditional country music. I started kind of studying it, listening to it, giving it a chance and studying it. Yeah. And uh, so that's a big part of me. Much later, I was introduced to my first bluegrass festival at yeah. Bean Blossom. Yeah. And I found what I had been missing for years, songs with content, lyrics with a meaning mm-hmm. that told stories that, to me, was not in any other music anymore, especially in the country, but songs with meaning, and I was hooked. And uh, that is where I discovered what will be one of your questions at some point in time, my favorite sad song. You, know, you, you might as well say it because we need to end. We need you to, knew we that gotta, was kind of, yeah, we got to wrap this up. Yeah. So this is the Sad Songs of Skillets podcast, and just like on every episode so far, we end it with telling uh, a favorite sad song of ours. And, because, I mean, sad songs are the best. Are there any other kind of songs, Denny? Do you like happy songs? I feel like you probably like happy songs. I, I do like some. I do like happy songs. I like. We don't want to hear about it. I like funny <laughs> songs. Yeah, I, I, I like songs that are geared toward kids. The sad songs are my favorite. Yeah, I, I'll say this real quick. We were, we was up in Washington D.C. last month doing interviews with Smithsonian Folkways for our new uh, record that will be out by the time you're hearing this. It is out now. Go listen to it. Never slow down on Smithsonian Folkways, but I had to do an interview, a video interview, with the people at Smithsonian, and they asked me why I like sad songs so much, and my reasoning behind it is most people, sad songs make them depressed and make them feel sad. For me, it's the complete opposite. Like, if you're having a bad day and you think the whole entire world is out to get you and there's nothing that you can do right, and it's all on you, all on your shoulders. And you listen to George Jones sing a song like Things Have Gone to Pieces. It doesn't make me sadder. It makes me feel like, you know, someone else has felt this before. I'm not the only one that feels this way. I'm not alone. It's not just me, you know. Other people feel this way. And it's, it's a normal part of life. That's why I like sad songs. I love sad songs. I love emotional songs. It don't necessarily have to be a heartbreak song, but just, you know, you're not the only one going through the shit at the moment. Yeah. That's why I like them. That being said, Denny, what is your sad song for this episode? Well, it takes me a second to tell the story, and we're about well, out of time. Oh, but we, I mean, we can go however. Okay, because however I've got long. to tell this story to go with it. Well, yeah, there's, yeah. Okay. Well, first off, let me say. I've got a favorite sad song, and I am, I'm not going to bow out and say, okay, well, you can choose these three. I'm not going to do that. I've got a favorite. Yeah. I have to mention, I think, personally, I think the best number one sad song ever written was He Stopped Loving Her Today. Yeah. I'm not jumping on a bandwagon. <clears throat> That's just how I feel. That song is just all about despair for this man's entire life. Yeah. Not having the biggest thing that he loved in life mm-hmm. and and being reminded every day because he's got that picture by his bed yeah. every day of his life. And it ends like that. 
Yeah. That's how he lived his life. I think that was so well written and, and the hook, the catch in there. My second, of course, of course, and then you've got George Jones delivering it. Yeah. My second, I think, I won't say the second best written, but it's just phenomenal in my eyes. And it was delivered great twice. One by the voice, Vern Gosden, and the other by the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the King, James King. Yeah. And that is chiseled in stone. Oh, yeah. Because that song <laughs> there, there's another one, but it's got an upside. He, he's trying to teach a lesson to this young boy mm-hmm. that has just had a spat. Yeah. And, and trying, to, trying to soften that, that feeling or that anger or hurt or whatever he's got with a little bit of booze and this old man sitting next to him lines it out. Mm-hmm. You don't know lonely. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Till it's chiseled in stone. So there's an upside. That old man is sad, but he's using that sadness to teach a lesson to this young boy. Okay, here's my story. All right. Back in the 80s, try to quick talk. Back in the the mid-80s, my grandfather passed away. And I was, um, you know, anytime anything happens, if you're really thinking about it, concentrating about it, it's on your mind really heavy, there's a good chance you're going to have a dream mm. some way connected, yeah. you know, to that. Yeah. Well, that's what happened. But it was one of them dreams that I thought was real. But I thought, this can't be, but I'm not asleep. This is happening. And what it was, I was at my, I was at my grandfather and grandmother's house, uh, grandpa's Funeral had just taken place. All the family was over at their house. Bring, you know, how people bring in food. We're all there at the house. Of course, this had just happened. Now I'm reliving it in this, in this dream, you know. And uh, I found myself going into the kitchen, and everybody else was in this little living room, little small house. Everyone's packed in there. And I was turning around, and I was looking at the radio that they'd always listen to every morning. It was up on the kitchen counter, and I turned back around, and Grandpa was standing on the other side of the kitchen. And I was like, I'm dreaming. This isn't real. And I thought, no, I'm not dreaming. This is, this is happening. And uh, I said, Grandpa? And he shook his head. He didn't say anything. He shook his head. Yes. I said, am I the only one that can see you? And he grinned a little bit, shook his head, yes. And then he walked toward me, because I was just standing there. And he said, I, <clears throat> I just wanted to let you know that I'm okay. And I said, well, I sure thank you for that. And uh, when I woke up, it was like, okay, that was a dream, you know. It, I mean, but it, but even though it was a dream, I found comfort in that. I mean, I found comfort in that. Now, roll forward to 2014, I think it was. My first bluegrass festival, Bean Blossom. I'm, I'm just loving it, loving every minute of it. Had never experienced this. There was one, one band that got up there that played that I thought, you know, I really like them a lot. They're, they're not, they're not what I'm feeling like. I thought bluegrass is, uh, but I really like them. I like these songs. Yeah. But, uh, and so afterwards, I, uh, 
got up and I was stretching my legs, walking around. I end up just kind of walking, walking around, looking, and I seen this guy that had been singing. All the crowd was gone. He's just by himself up here at the CD table, you know. I said, well, that's that guy. I said, man. So I just went up and started talking to him. And just as nice as could be. And I thought, this is something else. You can approach these people, you know. And he yeah. was just talking to me just like I'm talking to you now. And uh, so we talked there for a good while. And I, I said, no, I just love the, love your songs and stuff. And so after a while, it was just him and I up there talking. He said, well, I'm getting ready to go up the hill back here. He said, I'm going to do a, a songwriting workshop. You want to come up there and join me? He said, I'll be starting it here in just a little bit. I said, well, yeah, that'd be, that'd be neat. So I walked up there, and I sat down, and he started talking about different songs that he had wrote and, and uh, the process. And and uh, someone out in the audience, they said, called him by name, and, and I, I she knew this person. She knew him. And she said, would you mind singing and said this title of this song and maybe tell us the story behind that he goes well yeah i'd I'd be glad to so he starts off some years back my mother passed away and just shortly after that i had this dream and he said i was i was we was over at the folks house and all the family was over there was had all the food around you know and he said "I, i found myself in looking across the room, and there was my mom. And he said, now, people was walking around and stuff, but they was walking right by her like they didn't see her. I said, Mom? She said, yeah. I said, am I the only one that can see you? She said, yes. And she told me, she goes, I just wanted you to know that everything's okay. I'm not really gone. I've just gone on before. That's that song. And uh, to this day, that's my favorite sad song. But here's the difference. It is sad, but there's a message of hope. Yeah. And I think that's what grabs me. Because um, she said, uh, I am home safe. That was the message. She sent in a dream to give me some peace. Yeah. And... And she goes on to talk about all the things that he can still see in her, the songs, the Bible by her bedstand, her her daughter's hair. I'm still there. And then there's a bridge that says, uh, I can't come back to you, but you can still come to me. There's no tears in heaven. And once you get here, you'll see. I'm not really gone. So that connection that I have with that song, the story that went with it, and then the message of hope that tags along with it. And I've seen the expression. I've performed that song so many times since then. Who's the songwriter? Uh, the songwriter was, um, oh, man, you shouldn't have asked me that. I was getting ready to tell you. Oh, man. My bad. <laughs> Good grief. Mine just went like uh, old Highway 40 Blues. Oh, Larry Cordell. Oh, Larry, Larry Cordell. Cordell. Larry okay. Cordell. Just my mind just slipped. I had another thought. Yeah. Couldn't get it out of there okay. yet. Okay. But, yeah, Larry Cordell was who I was talking to, did the songwriting yeah, deal. Wow. And he's got two cuts of that. His original cut is my favorite. He cut it again for radio release. I like the first one better. The thing is, is you can, with a little adjustment, very little, you can, cha- you can change that 
the male, female, mm. anybody. Yeah. And I've seen the the re- <clears throat> the release of tears and then the smile of yeah. happiness all yeah. in the same song. I love that. Wow. So, um, not really gone or gone on before, however he titled it. Yeah. Uh, that has to be my favorite sad song um, by Mr. Larry Corbin. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's, that's a good story and a good, mm. good song, yeah. I guess uh, I'll go next because you yelled at me last time for going last every well, we, time. That's fine. We, yeah. You rushing me? Yeah. Yeah, mine's uh, Thrill is Gone by B.B. King. And, uh. I mean, it's just got everything that a great B.B. King song has in it. But, the, you know, are you familiar with the song, Thrill is yeah. Gone, B.B. King? The freaking strings in the background. Yeah. And uh, I, I watched the B.B. King documentary, and they were talking about when they recorded Thrill is Gone, it didn't have the strings in it. And his producer called him up in the middle of the night. He was like, hey, what if we put, like, a symphony of strings behind the music? And B.B. King looked at the camera. He said, that white boy wanted to do what with my song? <laughs> <laughs> but that makes it. Yeah. yeah, those strings in the background of that recording are so freaking heavy; they just pull you down. Well, you know? oh my gosh, that's man. the thing. Sometimes it's like the song itself, or like the lyrics, are really good. But yeah. what makes it or makes me have a connection is how it was delivered or who was the singer. Like it's like that cut of that song is yeah. is my favorite sad song. Not yeah. necessarily the song, but like yeah, how it was recorded, who recorded it, what was going on, like. That's what I like. Yeah. You know, some songs are just like, it doesn't matter who who recorded them or how yeah. many times you hear them or whatever. It's just, you get the same emotion, but sometimes it's like this, that thing is yeah, my it's, version of that. Those strings in that song yeah. just hit you hard. And I don't know if y'all are, uh, I don't know if y'all listen to much Chris Stapleton, but uh, Chris Stapleton's Cold has kind of the same thing going on in it. And I can't imagine that when they were recording that, they weren't thinking of Thrill is Gone. But, uh, I never heard it. No, I'm just no, kidding. I'm sure they no. have. They had to have. All right, Jasper, you're up. <laughs> All right, I'll just. I, I don't know. I. I'm not as lonesome as as, as you boys. So I just. Are you I, running out of? No, no, sad no. Songs? I'll just throw just throw one out. But I don't have a big story for it. It's just a sad, lonesome song. If you listen to it, but it's. Yeah. I don't know if. I don't know any history behind it, so I don't know. This is just the version I know is Merle Haggard singing that long black limited zine song. Oh yeah, long yeah. I don't know who like who wrote that song or I'm not sure. I know uh, who else cut it, but that's, that's just Keith Whitley cut it. Yeah, yeah. Keith Whitley had a great cut. So on I it. mean, that's just a lonesome old sad song. That's but, the one about where she uh, she died in the car wreck. Well, it's where unless I'm getting my songs mixed up, it's the one where she was she like left him and went to the city and was like she was always trying to. Like she wanted to be fancier, and she wanted yeah, to have fancy yeah, friends. And he was like, you know, small or you know, said something the, the small town guy or whatever. They told her the fatal crash that night, and yeah. Well, anyway, the the hook, the hook line is like she's riding in that yeah. long black limousine, which Great of course song. is the hearse. Yeah. So that is a sad song. Yeah. I always thought of it as a regular limousine, like they just rolled her into the back. of No, the, no, I think a party bus. <laughs> no, that is a, that is a sad yeah. song, man. That's a good one. All right, so fine example of a Mr. Sad Danny song. Johnson. Thanks for joining us, Jug. You want to end us out? Yeah, this has been another episode of Sad Songs and Skillets, an extended episode. Brought to you by longest to date, longest one to date. We're gonna have to have a volume two, Danny. Oh, that'd be yeah, great. Part two. 
Brought to you by Crispy Cast Iron Seasoning Products. Go to crispy.org, C-R-I-S-B-E.org. Use promo code PRB10. That's P as in Poe, B, R, shoot. P as in Poe, R as in Ramblin', B as in Boys, 10 as in 1-0 to get 10% off your order. Also brought to you by Sound Biscuit Productions in Sevierville, Tennessee. That's where we've recorded all of our albums no discount code because no we owe him code. too much money. Yeah, anyway. we owe him a lot of money. Check it out. Uh, Sound Productions. This is Sad Songs and Skillets. Over and out.